Good morning, everybody. Well, if you have your Bibles um, with you, you can open them up to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. You know, when the Lord intervenes in a person's life, a person who wasn't looking for him, a person who wasn't talking to him, a person who wasn't seeking for him, but the Lord takes the, actually takes the initiative and makes himself known, what it does is, is it begins, he begins this process of reorienting our life around his life. His presence in our lives transforms, it should, it should begin the process of transforming our life and reorienting uh, our life around his life. This has, by the way, this has always been the case. This is what happens, and you can see this clearly both in Scripture and in history. Take, for example, Saul of Tarsus, probably the most well-known example. Saul of Tarsus, when we first see Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 7, it's in connection with the stoning of Stephen. Great persecution breaks out against the Christians, and they stone Stephen for for confessing Jesus is the Messiah. And Saul was there, we read at the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, that Saul was there giving his approving, his approval of the execution. And then in Acts chapter 8, we read that Saul is breathing out murderous threats. And he's bringing great persecution upon the early church. And he's going from house to house, persecuting and arresting anybody, anybody, men and women, anybody who confessed Jesus as the Messiah. And in Acts chapter 9, it opens up by telling us that Saul's on a little journey. He's on a journey from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest and put in prison anybody again who was going to confess Jesus as Christ. And it's along this journey that the Lord Jesus appears to him and begins to speak to him and his life is completely transformed. His life is reoriented and he goes from persecuting those for belief in Christ to becoming a preacher of the message of Christ, and helping, hoping to help others come to faith in Christ. So he sets off on one journey, but the Lord, in his providence, has a whole other journey that he's going he's gonna to use Saul for. And his transformation, his transformation goes on and changes history. And you may hear that and you may think, well, that's nice. That's a nice scripture story. But let me give it to you from history. Jump forward about 350 years. And Augustine is on his own journey. In 384, Augustine moved from Rome to the imperial city of Milan to teach rhetoric. And this was a good move for Augustine. He was quite pleased with this assignment. It was a good career move. And he didn't move from Rome to Milan hoping to become converted to Christianity because he had already rejected Christianity. He thought there were some real intellectual weaknesses in Christianity, and he had long since rejected it. And so he wasn't going there to become converted to Christianity. He had rejected it. He was chasing various pleasures. Augustine was a sex addict, and so he was chasing various pleasures. He was chasing various philosophies. So he wasn't going there to become a Christian. But when he got to Milan, he sought out Ambrose. And again, not because he wanted to become converted to Christianity, because he didn't. He sought out Ambrose for his oratory skills. Ambrose was a great preacher, very dynamic preacher. And so he sought him out simply to listen to him to gain skills. 
And he became intrigued by Ambrose's preaching until finally in 386, in a famous story, Augustine, as he's walking in the garden, he hears a voice that says, pick up and read. And so he picks up a Bible and he opens it up to the book of Romans. And he was convicted of his sin and he became a Christian. And then he was baptized the next Easter. Augustine's life, and indeed, it's not an exaggeration to say, the history of the world would never be the same. He was on one sort of journey, just a career move, from Rome to Milan, but God had him on a very different sort of journey. Fast forward to 1505, and we're no longer in Rome, we're in Germany. And after receiving his law degree, Martin Luther decided he was going to uh, travel from Erfurt to uh, Mansfield to visit his family. And during the journey, he was caught in a violent thunderstorm. It was so violent that he thought God had unleashed it. He unleashed this storm to take Luther's life. And so he called out famously to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of the miners. And Luther's dad owned a mine. And so he called out to St. Anne and he said, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Well, the storm subsided. Luther survived the thunderstorm and then he kept his vow. He becomes a monk. He puts aside his law degree and he becomes a monk, an Augustinian monk, by the way. Augustine, he becomes an Augustinian monk, much to his father's great dismay. His father despised the fact that he became a monk. But this event on this journey is set him on a spiritual trajectory that again would change his life. And again, it's not an exaggeration to say it would change the course of history. As he set aside the law and he pursued Christian ministry, which led, of course, to the great Protestant Reformation. Let me push you forward a little bit more, a couple more years forward. It's now 1536. And a young academic by the name of John Calvin, he decided he was going to settle down in the German city of Strasbourg. And he decided he wanted to go, he wanted to move there and simply settle down there. He wanted to have a quiet life of productive academic scholarship. But as Providence would have it, the road that he normally would go to to get into the, to the city from, from France to Strasbourg, it was closed due to military exercises. And so he had to seek the German city through another route, which took him right through the, the, the uh, Switzerland city of Geneva. And while he was in Geneva, he met a fiery preacher by the name of William Farrell, who implored him, begged him to stay in Geneva. And in Calvin's own words, he said this. He said, Farrell, who burned with a marvelous zeal to advance the gospel, he went out of his way to keep me. In fact, what Farrell did, he t- <laughs> this is not the way to do it, but he told Calvin that if you don't stay here, God would curse your studies. <laughs> Nothing like the little threats of curse from God to convince a guy. But you know what? God used it. God used even Farrell's stupidity and said, it used it in Calvin's life when he said, okay, I'm going to stay here. He stayed there. He stayed there and gave the rest of his life to bring to bear the gospel of Christ on the city of Geneva. And again, changing the history of the world. Now listen, each one of their journeys was reoriented. Each one of these guys, they were on a journey. They were doing something that they thought they knew what they were going to do. 
And then their lives were transformed when the grace of God became very real to them. And my guess is this morning, if you're a Christian, my guess is, if you're a Christian, you can remember when the Lord revealed himself to you in a very real and a very tangible way. In a very real and a very tangible way. Am I right about that? Do you remember that? When the Lord revealed himself to you in a very real and a very tangible way and you couldn't escape it. I bet you I'm right about that. And for most of us who are Christians, it's true, our conversion didn't change the course of history. But it changed our lives. And if you're a Christian and you have a family, it probably changed the course of your family's history. Probably changed the course of your children's history. And maybe, maybe, it leads to others who are friends and families of yours, who you love, and changed the course of their lives as well. You see, we're also on, all of us are on some sort of a journey. And maybe like Augustine, it's a job relocation. Maybe like Luther, you're just going to visit family. Maybe like Calvin, you just hope to settle down. You're going to settle down in one place. You think you're on one journey, but the Lord in his providence has a completely different plan for you has a completely different sort of journey for you to take, where the Lord's going to meet you, and the Lord's going to reorient your entire life around his grace. This is what we see in scripture. This is what we see in history. This is what we experience in our own lives. And in Genesis chapter 28, you can go ahead and turn there, Genesis chapter 28, we're going to see a man who sets out on a journey. And he's got a one-way ticket. He's got plans. And what's going to happen is the Lord is going to complete, the Lord's grace is going to completely reorient his life and bring about his transformation. So Genesis chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. And the background, of course, if you've been with us in this section of Genesis, you know we've been studying the life of Jacob for the last couple of weeks now. And Jacob, just as a reminder, Jacob is, well, with the help of his mother, Jacob deceives his dying dad and he steals the firstborn blessing from his older brother Esau. So to put it real nicely, Jacob is a real piece of work. I mean, that's the nicest way you can put it. He is a real piece of work. He's a scoundrel. His mom hatches this plan, of course, where instead of trusting the Lord, that the Lord would bring forth his promise, that the, the older would serve the younger, she comes up with this plan and says, I want you to go in and deceive your dad. But it's Jacob who acts it out. It's Jacob who seals the deal. And he deceives Isaac by lying about his identity, claiming to be the older son, claiming to be Esau. And then he lies about the Lord's provision of the food. And the whole thing, the whole scheme shows you how dysfunctional this family is. How dysfunctional Jacob is. And when Esau, the older son, comes in to receive his blessing, and he hears that it's already been given to the younger son, he discovers that the younger son has already come and gotten it. And so instead of receiving a blessing, he actually ends up receiving an anti-blessing. When he hears that, um, we're told in verse 41 of chapter 27 that Esau hated Jacob, and he was waiting for Isaac to die so that uh, he could kill Jacob. He looks at the situation and he says, I'm going to get my revenge. I can't make life any more bitter for the old man. I've already done that enough. So I'm going to wait until he dies. And the moment he dies, I'm going to go and I'm going to kill Jacob. And Rebecca, the mom, 
Here's this. And so she hatches a second plan. And her second plan is to protect her favorite son. Rebecca is Jacob's only friend at this point. And she hatches another plan to, to keep Jacob from being killed. And so in order for Jacob to get far away so that Esau wouldn't kill him, she goes into Isaac and says, let's send Jacob off to Haran, to my uncle, so that he can get married. He has a, a smidge of of a smidge of truth in it, but her real motive was to get him away from Esau so that he would be protected. And so Isaac agrees. He calls Jacob in, and he reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to him, and then he sends him off to Laban, to um, Jacob's uncle, to find a wife. And so beginning in verse 10, in chapter 28, what you have, the beginning in verse 10, chapter 28, what you have is the start of Jacob's journey. From Beersheba to Haran. But more than that, more than just a journey from Beersheba to Haran, you actually have the start of Jacob's journey with the Lord himself. And it comes about in the most unexpected and revolutionary way. So Genesis 28, and we're going to work verses 10 through 22 this morning. And let me give you the outline right up front so you can see where we're going and then we'll go there. Here's what we'll see. In verses 10 through 15, the Lord reveals himself to Jacob. That's in verses 10 through 15, the Lord reveals himself to Jacob. In verses 16 and 17, the Lord reorients Jacob's life. And then in verses 18 through 22, the Lord restructures Jacob's heart values. And we'll see it in some pretty dramatic ways. 18 through 22, the Lord restructures Jacob's heart values. You guys got that? Okay, let's get into the text. Beginning in verse 10. Am I going too fast? You guys with me? I've had a whole pot of coffee this morning. So, so I'm a little, I'm a little amped up. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and lay down in that place to sleep. So he starts off on this journey from Beersheba to Haran, and that's quite a journey, by the way. It's about 550 miles from, uh, from Beersheba to, to Haran. And, and again, remember, no trains, planes. Or automobiles. He maybe, maybe he's on the back of a camel at this point. Um, but that's quite a journey. And, and it's the, by the way, it's the same journey in reverse that Abraham made 125 years earlier when he went from Haran to Beersheba. So, so he's now, Jacob's going back. And you gotta remember, who is Jacob? Jacob was the homebody. Jacob was the one who lo- loved to dwell in tents. Esau was the one who loved to be outside in the wilderness. So he gets out there, and this is all of this is rather uncomfortable for him. Um, Esau probably would have loved this trip. But Jacob, he's probably dreading this trip. So he gets out there. Put yourself in his sandals. He gets out there. He's, maybe, you know, he's 50 miles out there, which is maybe two, two to three days worth of journey at this point to the place that he gets to here, and he puts his head down. And as the sun is setting, he finds a rock 
And he puts it under his head for a pillow. Aren't you glad you live in the 21st century? I mean, he, he puts it under his head as, as a pillow. Um, he has completely, what it symbolizes is he has completely left the comfort and the safety of home. And there's no turning back. There's absolutely no turning back because he knows what lies behind him is Beersheba and Esau who's waiting to kill him. He knows he can't go back. And what's ahead of him in Haran is Laban, who's waiting to exploit him. What he is, is he's in the middle of the mess of his own making. He's right there in the middle of a mess of his own making. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. He's situated between a death camp and a work camp. He knows he can't go back, and he's unsure of what lies ahead. And that's a terrifying feeling. Let me ask you, ever been in a similar situation? Where you know you can't go back, but you're unsure of what lies ahead. Maybe, maybe, you're in a similar position this morning. Maybe you're running away from something. And yet you're unsure of what lies ahead. All you know is that you're in the middle of a mess of your own making. You know you can't go back, but you're afraid of what lies ahead. Now listen, if you're in that headspace... And let's be honest, a lot of people, the only time they will ever walk through a church door is when they're in the middle of that type of space. It's what will drive a person to walk through a church door. If you're in, the, if you're in that type of headspace, let me tell you, you're in good company. Because the Lord will often meet his people in those type of situations. And what he will often do is he will reveal himself and then he will begin the process of transformation. And that's exactly what the Lord begins to do here with Jacob. The Lord comes and he reveals himself to Jacob through a dream. Look at what he does, verse 12. And it is amazing. Verse 12. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder... Some of your translations there will say stairway. That's probably a better translation. Uh, he dreamed, and behold, there was a, a ladder or stairway set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or, or alongside of him, in some of your translations will say there. So Jacob's dreaming, right? And this is no ordinary dream. In, this is no ordinary dream. In the dream, he sees a great stone stairway stretching down from heaven above. And again, the word that's translated in verse 12, ladder, um, in the NIV, it's stairway. And again, uh, that's probably a better translation. And what he probably, what Jacob probably saw was one of the um, ziggurat towers that were pretty common throughout the ancient Near East. And in his dream, he sees these angels Climbing up, uh, angels ascending and descending. He sees these angels. Well, ask yourself, what's an angel? Well, get out of your mind any hallmark pictures you have of angels. Get out of your mind any 1990s terrible shows on CBS like Touched by an Angel. Get out of your mind those things. Because every time you see an angel in the scriptures, the very next thing you see is them having to say, Fear not. 
So get out of your mind in the soft, lovey-dovey, sanitized, hallmark greeting card angels. What you have, the, what, so what are angels? Here's what they are. They're the royal ambassadors of a holy God. They're the royal messengers. They bring communication from the throne room of the king of the universe. That's what an angel is. And in this dream, he sees these angels ascending and descending. And then he sees, in the middle of it, was the Lord himself. He sees the Lord himself who came and stood over him. The stairway in Jacob's dream, what it is? We'll talk more about this in a second. But it was God's answer to the Tower of Babel that the people tried to construct in Genesis chapter 11 where they thought that they were going to build a tower climbing towards the heavens. Here, the stairway is represented as stretching from heaven down to earth because communication from heaven to earth is only established, by the way, by God taking the initiative. It's not man reaching up to heaven. It's God taking the initiative and coming down and communicating with humanity. The contact between heaven and earth exists sheerly by the grace of God. And this is the grace of God breaking into Jacob's story. It's complete. Now think about it because it's completely unsought. It's completely undeserved. It's completely unmerited favor from the Lord. Because up to this point, as we've looked at Jacob's story, he has been seen as nothing but manipulative and deceitful. But the Lord takes the initiative and he reveals himself to Jacob. And then the Lord begins to speak to him in verse 13. And what he does is he renews, what the Lord says to him is he renews the Abrahamic covenant to him. Look at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood, verse 13, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father. And the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you. Until I have done what I have promised. Now now that language. If you've been with us in the study of Genesis. That language. That should be very familiar language to you. This is the promise that was given to Abraham. This is the promise then that was reasserted to Isaac. The Lord promises progeny and property. Um, that's the promised land. And then he promises the Lord's presence. And for Jacob... Think about this. This is an amazing promise. It's absolutely amazing promise for Jacob because at this point, Jacob is friendless, defenseless, and penniless. He's all of those things. He's friendless. His only friend, his mom, is back in the tent, 50 miles back. He's completely friendless. He's completely defenseless. He's out there in the middle of the wilderness by himself, and he's penniless. Anytime you're sleeping with a rock as your pillow, you are penniless. And the Lord comes to him, and he says, I'll be with you wherever. I will watch over you completely, and I will bless you. That's an amazing promise. Amazing promise. And think of the sense of security 
that it must give to Jacob in the middle of the mess of his own making. It's an amazing thing. As he's fleeing, the Lord comes and says, I'm going to do all these things for you. My love for you is unconditional. It's amazing. And then, in verses, so in verses 10 through 15, we see the Lord revealing himself to him. Now, verses 16 and 17, the Lord reorients Jacob's life. And just like Saul of Tarsus, and just like Augustine, and just like Luther, and just like Calvin, here's Jacob, he's on this journey. And the Lord intervenes. The Lord shows up. The Lord's grace penetrates, his grace penetrates into the mess of his own making here. The mess of Jacob's making. And you can tell that his grace, his grace is beginning to reorient his life because of how Jacob responds to this dream. He says some pretty remarkable things. Look at verse 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. <laughs> By the way, that's my prayer every Sunday that people would come to church and they would hear the gospel preach and they would say, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. Jacob, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. And I want you to underline or circle the phrase the gate of heaven and we'll come back to it at the close. He looks at this. This is, this is exactly where ja- Jacob's journey with the Lord actually begins. He knows he doesn't deserve the Lord's grace. And yet the Lord took the initiative. And the Lord revealed himself to Jacob. And more than that, he pledged himself to Jacob because of the Abrahamic covenant. And Jacob, Jacob is just so overwhelmed by all of this. He just says, how awesome is this? I could kick myself for not knowing this earlier. The Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. The Lord completely reorients his life. And instead of being completely concerned with self, he begins to see that the Lord is with him. And that changes him. His thinking now doesn't begin with self, but with the Lord. And that's actually the first step to having your own faith, is the realization that there is a God And it's not me. And that's the process that Jacob's on. This is a pivotal moment in Jacob's faith journey. No longer relying upon his parents' faith. He begins to have a faith all his own. And you can see it. In verse 16, he uses... You see in verse 16 how the Lord is all in caps? You see that? That's the covenant name of God. So it's the covenant name of God upon Jacob's lips at this point. Because before, when he was talking to Isaac, he spoke to Isaac as the Lord your God. But here, he's using the covenant name of God. The covenant name of God is on his own lips. So the Lord reveals himself to him. The Lord reorients Jacob's life. And now, verses 18 through 22, what's going to happen is the Lord's going to restructure Jacob's heart values. Look at verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar. And poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel or Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, Now look at this. In all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob is 
just so overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord. The Lord that came all the way down, all the way down the stairwell to where the place that he was lying, that he calls it, he calls the name of that place Bethel, meaning the house of God. And in faith, Jacob, Jacob responded to the promise. Responded to the promise in the presence of God. He took the stone that served as a headrest and he set it up as a memorial. As a memorial to God's appearing, but also to his vow. And then he poured oil out on the stone to symbolize his devotion. And he claimed God's promises one by one. And he pledged his own dedication to the one who was the God of his fathers, but is now also his own God. And here's how you can tell that the Lord's restructuring Jacob's heart values. Because you see there the last line, the very last line in verse 22. Jacob promises to give a tenth of all that he's given. And that's an indicator of the restructuring of Jacob's heart. Because by nature, Jacob is a grasper. From the very first, the very first thing we see of Jacob in his birth, he's grasping after his brother's heels. He's grasping after the birthright. He's grasping after the blessing. So by his very nature, he's a grasper. But here, after the Lord's revealed himself to him, and after he's reoriented his life around the Lord's grace, instead of grasping for more, he's becoming generous. He's not being greedy, he's being generous. The restructuring of his heart values, the thing that his heart really desires, are starting to change. There's this process when the Lord's grace comes upon you that the Lord begins to restructure your heart values and the things that you were by nature that are not the characteristics of the Lord. He begins to restructure those things with the help of the Holy Spirit and your cooperation. He begins to restructure those things so that your heart values begin to line up and when your heart values line up more with the Lord, your daily living lines up more with the Lord. And this is what what is happening with Jacob. By the way, one of the ways... Um, you can do a diagnostic check on if the grace of God and the presence of God in your, in your life is actually making a difference in your day-to-day life is by asking yourself, over the, over the course of the past year, are my heart values, the things that shape my living, are my heart values coming more and more in line with the character of God than they were a year ago? That's a quick diagnostic check that you can do. But you've got to be honest with yourself. You can't lie to yourself when you're doing a self-diagnostic check on your own heart. Are my characteristics, are my heart values, which affects the way that I live, what I'm chasing after, are they becoming more and more in line with the Lord's character? And if they're not, you can say, well, I must not be really leaning into the process. I must not really be leaning into the grace of God. I must not really be leaning into discipleship after Christ. You see, Jacob's journey here, which starts in earnest right here, it becomes the catalyst for life change. And he goes from being greedy to generous. And he takes the Lord's promises by faith. And the account, it closes right there. And we'll do the same. Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to go back now, and I want to look at Jacob's response to this dream, this vision, this this encounter he has with the Lord, because what he sees and what he says in response and what he does, what he sees, what he says in response and what he does, it's the way forward. It's the way forward for you and I. So what does he see? What does he see? Here's, we're told he sees the stairway 
with all the angels who are the royal messengers from the king on high. The holy king. And they're ascending and descending on the stairway. And then he sees the Lord standing over him. Speaking words of affirmation over him. It's very much like like a uh, father or a mother looking over their child when they're sleeping. There's no better thing in the world than looking over your child when they're sleeping. Is, is that true? Is that not true? There's nothing better, especially when your kids are really young and you see your child sleeping and they're so perfect and you're looking at them. You know they're not perfect, but they look perfect when they're sleeping. And you're just looking at them. You're like, oh, this is a perfect little moment. And you're speaking words of affirmation over them. Now think, that feeling, this is now, think about this. This is what the holy God, the holy God is doing to Jacob. And that's amazing. Because Jacob hasn't asked for God. He hasn't called out for God. Nothing in his life at this point indicates he wants anything to do with God. This is completely unsought. God comes right to him unsought from Jacob. Jacob is at the bottom of his life. He has done terrible things. And notice there's not one word of condemnation. Did you notice that? All of the words from the Lord are unconditional. He said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. All of the words are words of reassurance and they're unconditional. These are words of of assurance and love from a holy God. Well, how can that be? How can that possibly be that a holy God would look upon such a scoundrel as Jacob and said, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to reassure you. I'm going to give words of unconditional love to you. How could that be? Well, what Jacob says next actually gives us the answer. Jacob wakes up and he declares how awesome this place is. Because he's just had an encounter with the Lord then. He's just had an encounter with the Lord there. And then he lets us in on something. The very last part in verse 17. I had you underline it. Jacob says, This is the gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. And that's that's a technical term. I told you earlier um, that this was God's answer to the Tower of Babel, and this is the reason why I said that. Remember in Genesis chapter 11, again, if you've been with us in the study of Genesis, uh, you should remember this. If you haven't been with us, you can go back and find the teaching. But in Genesis chapter 11, humanity got together, and all of their collective wisdom, (laughs) humanity and all of their collective wisdom got together, and they built a tower with the intention of the top reaching the heavens. And they named it the Tower of Babel. And scholars tell us, scholars will tell us that the word Babel and its derivative, Babylon, in, in, near, each, uh, in near Eastern dialects, it means Babel or, or Babylon. What it means in Near Eastern dialects is it means the gate of heaven or the gate of the gods. Babel means the gate of heaven or the gate of God. And again, they built, now listen, they built these ziggurats, these large, you guys know what a ziggurat is? It's these large stone um, staircases that would go up and then there'd be a little flat thing. It looked like a place where you could park your helicopter. They'd large, large, massive, large stone staircases and they would try to build them all the way up into the heavens. 
They built these large ziggurats with small shrines at the top so that people could ascend as you did your sacrifices. And as you did your rites of purification. And as you did your prayers, you ascended to the gods through your religious works. But Jacob had none of these things. Jacob had done any rites of purification. Jacob hadn't had any prayers. Jacob doesn't have any religious works. And yet he has this revelation from God. He sees God standing over him speaking words of reassurance. And this is why Jacob is so amazed. And this is why his dream. And this is why this whole scene is so revolutionary. He wakes up and he says, oh my. Oh, oh my heavens. This is how the gate of God actually works. This is how the gate of heaven actually works. You see, every other religion, every other, every other religion, every other system is works righteousness. Where you climb the next rung through your effort and you work your way up to God. But that is not this. What Jacob sees is not works, works righteousness. It is not a ladder system where I'm climbing my way up to God. This is, this is uh, not a stairway to heaven. This is a stairway from heaven. It's a stairway of grace that God comes all the way down to an unimpressive place. I don't know if you know, the main word in this text six times is the word place. It goes from place to place to place to place. They keep using the word place. They, they don't give it a name until after God visits it. It's just this unimpressive, unimpressive place. God, God comes down to an unimpressive place, to a completely unimpressive person, surely by his grace. This is amazing. I mean, it's just mind-boggling amazing. He comes all the way down. Do you see how revolutionary this is? It's not a work system that Jacob has to climb his way up to God. God has come all the way down. He comes all the way down. Down. This is the way the gospel works. He comes all the way down. He comes to you. And he comes to give you unconditional love. Now again, this is completely different than every other religion. Every other major religion is a world, every other major uh, religion is a ladder system. Where if you're good enough, and if your religious discipline is strong enough, you'll climb your way into God's presence. But the gate of heaven, that God reveals to Jacob, it's a stairway down. It's a stairway down. It's a stairway that descends and God stands over you with grace. And he speaks unconditional love upon you. Well, how can a holy God do this? Because Jacob is undeserving. He's not seeking God. He's not talking to God. He's completely unworthy of this. But God comes in absolute grace with all of his holy angels right into his life. How can this be? How can the gate of heaven open to someone whose character is so crooked like Jacob's? How can a holy God bestow his grace upon someone like him? How could it possibly be? Well, the answer actually comes centuries later. In an exchange that Jesus has. And if you don't understand this exchange, what Jesus says here, if you don't make the connection with Jacob's ladder, you'll never understand what Jesus is saying. In John chapter 1, we got time. Go ahead and turn there. John chapter 1. I wasn't going to have you turn there. But I've been talking so fast. We got time. John chapter 1. I want you to see it. I won't make you read all of it. In John chapter 1. 
Jesus is calling his first disciples in verses 43 through 51. He's calling his first disciples. And he's just called Philip to be his disciple. And Philip has a friend by the name of Nathaniel. And Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says, you're not going to believe it. <laughs> he goes, you're not going to believe it. We found the Messiah. The one the prophets predicted. We found him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel looks at him and says, Nazareth? You've got to be kidding me. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He looks at Philip and he says, God doesn't come to unimpressive places. He doesn't come to unimpressive places. And Philip says, well, tell you what. Come and check it out. Come and see. And so they start walking together, Philip and Nathaniel. And Jesus sees Nathaniel coming and he says, Behold, an Israelite. What's Jacob's name get changed to? Israel. So Jesus sees him walking. He says, he sees uh, Nathaniel walking. He says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel hears this and he says, Yeah, you know, my friends tell me that I'm a straight shooter. This is true. So, but, but how do you know me? And Jesus says, hmm, before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, and you thought nobody saw you, you thought nobody knew what your thoughts were, he said, I saw you. I saw you. I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's eyes got as big as saucers, and his jaw dropped to the floor, and his gears in his mind were stripped, and his questions about Jesus' identity were laid to rest. And he exclaims, he says, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus says to him, verse 51, he says, you're impressed by that? That's a loose paraphrase. <laughs> really? You're impressed by that? But then look what he does say in verse 51. He says, truly, truly. I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now look at what Jesus is, what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to this Israelite who knows the story of Jacob so well, Jesus is saying, I am the stairway that was in Jacob's dream. I am the link between heaven and earth. This is who I am. And this is why the stairway that Jacob saw in his dream, it worked in the exact opposite way of every other religion. It's the reason why Jacob's dream is so revolutionary because it goes, it flies counter, counterintuitive to everything religion has ever taught. Jesus doesn't say you will see angels ascending and descending to the Son of Man. He doesn't say that. He says you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, meaning there's no steps for you. There's no requirements you have to do in order to gain access with God. And this is what makes the gospel. Now, you all right now should be saying, praise the Lord. Every other world system is a ladder system that you have to be strong enough and smart enough to climb your way up into God's presence. The gospel says, no, you don't. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. I have to come all the way down. In order for you to come into the presence of God, I'm coming all the way down. That's, that's what's happening. There's no steps or requirements. You don't have to do anything in order to gain access to God. 
This is what makes the gospel so unique. Because every other religion, every other major religion has steps to God that you gotta do. Every other, every single one of them. There's the five pillars of Islam. Um, there's the ten commandments of Judaism. There's the eightfold path of enlightenment of Buddhism. Every other religion says, there's steps. There's the steps right there. There they are. If you're strong enough and smart enough, you'll work your way up into the presence of God. And Jesus comes along and he says, I'm the real gate of heaven. I'm the real gate of heaven. What Jacob saw in his dream, I'm the reality. I'm coming all the way down. And in me, I fulfilled all of the requirements for you. I fulfilled all of them. Which means there's nothing left for you to do. I've fulfilled all of the requirements. I lived the life you were supposed to live. In obedience to the Father and in step with God the Spirit. I lived the life you were supposed to live. I took the penalty we all should have taken. And I died the death you deserve to die. He did it all. He does it all. That's why Jesus is saying, I'm the access point. I'm the access point to God. There's no steps for you to do. You come to me. In repentant faith. This is why he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Because every other religion is a ladder system that you got to work for. Jesus says, No, 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 no. You come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You come to me in repentant faith, and then and only then will heaven be open for you. That's, that's amazing. That's an amazing promise. That's an amazing dream that Jacob said. Well, how do I come to him in repentant faith? That should be the very next question you're asking. That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Here's how. How do you come to the Lord in repentant faith? Oh, my friend, it's so simple. You look at your life. And you realize you're a lot like Jacob. That's what you do. You look at your life and you think, oh, my stars. I'm a lot like Jacob. Like Jacob, I'm morally bankrupt before God. I've lied, I've stole, I've cheated. I've done all of these things. So you admit that you're a lot like Jacob. You admit your own brokenness before God. And you repent of those things. And then you put outgoing trust, outgoing faith in Jesus. The one who has come all the way down from heaven to earth. Who has bridged that chasm. You put outgoing faith in the one that came all the way down from heaven to earth who's bridged that chasm, that chasm who offers you grace. And you stop talking about God and you start talking to God. And you say, Lord, I see that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Make me one of your children. I want, I want to belong to you now and forevermore. And he'll take you like that. He'll forgive you of your sins and give you new life in his name. Now listen, it's not just one. It's not just the negative, he'll for, gonna forgive you of your sins. It's the positive, he's gonna give you new life in his name. New life in the way of Christ. His spirit comes and dwells inside of you. So come to the Lord. Friend, if you're not a Christian yet, come to the Lord. Put repentant faith in Christ. He's the way to the Father's presence. And it's not through works of righteousness on your part. It's not through works of righteousness on your part, but through his grace. And then what do you do? Well, here's what you do. Like Jacob, you worship him with all you got. Is that what we see Jacob doing? Yep. What did Jacob have? He had some stone and some oil. And he got up. He set it up. And he declared the Lord's greatness. 
So you take the means that are available to you and you say, whatever I have, I'm going to worship the Lord with it. I'm going to worship the Lord with my life. Whatever I have right now in my life, I'm going to give it to the Lord. So you worship the Lord. And then, like Jacob, you let the Lord restructure your heart values. And you got to lean into that process, Christian friend. you got to lean into that process. you got to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, but you let the Lord restructure your heart values by letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you let, you let his gospel, the character, the words and the ways of Christ, you let the words and the ways of Christ fill the screen of your mind so that when you're tempted by things, or you say, well, how should I, how should I respond to this situation? You look to Christ and you say, well, what, is, what would Christ do? If Christ was in my skin in this situation, what would he do? And then you lean into that process and you, and you trust him. So that your, your words and your ways start to become, over time, the words and the ways of Christ. Now listen, friend, I, I really am going to close. Some of you are thinking, when is this guy going to stop talking? Listen, um, maybe you came here today and you thought that Christianity was a religious system. And that there were rungs that you had to climb up. And each rung, it gets a little bit harder and you get a little more tired. And your arms start shaking. You think it's a wrong system, I just got to climb up in order to gain God's approval. It's not about that at all. Christianity is not about that at all. The truth of the gospel, the truth of Christianity, is that God has come all the way down. He's the bridge between heaven and earth. He's fulfilled everything on your behalf so that when you come to him, he will extend to you free grace. He will forgive you of your sins, he will give you new life, new life in his name, and he will begin the process of restructuring our hearts, enabling us by his Holy Spirit to live and to love more like Christ. What is there, now ask yourself, what is there not to like about that message? <laughs> I mean, honestly, what is there not to like about that? Nothing. Nothing. Well then, do this. Let the Lord's grace break into your life today. Let his grace break into your life today. Come to him. Right now, by repenting of your sins, trusting him for new life, and then be baptized in his name. And we have a baptism coming up on Easter morning. And there's no better day to be baptized than Easter morning. So sign up and be baptized. Give your life to the Lord. He has done everything necessary. There's nothing for you to do in order to receive salvation. Now, there will be good works for you to do after that. But it's not, it's not in, a, in a way to earn anything. It's a response to the grace that he's already given you. Amen? Why don't you stand, we'll pray, and then we'll worship the Lord. Father, we are people who are much like Jacob. We freely admit it. We are broken, flawed, jacked up in all sorts of ways. And we are so thankful that your grace has come all the way down in the person of Jesus Christ. And you have done everything necessary to forgive us, to reconcile us with God the Father, to give us new life in your name through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And we sing because, again, we are a liberated people, and liberated people can't help but sing. And so we rejoice in this news, Lord, and we pray all the days of our life that we would live the gospel well in the places and to the people that you've called us to. In Christ's name, amen.